Good morning, church. Um, we're taking a little break today from our series in 1 Samuel, uh, which I personally have found very edifying. Right? It's been good to go uh, continue doing something we really value here at River Hills, which is preaching through an entire book of the Bible. And we're really happy to be doing that in 1 Samuel this spring and summer. And that's what we want to do. We want to preach through the whole book, seeing what God had, all of God's word has to tell us, right? But today we're taking a break from that. And so what are we going to do today? Well, um, today is Mother's Day, and, and we're going to take a day when our culture is celebrating moms, and we're celebrating moms too. We're going to take a moment to remind ourselves as a church why we have this particular core value, right? This wasn't the one, the intro of the sermon today, but it's one of our core values. We believe that parents are the best and primary teachers of spiritual truth to their children. We believe children become faith-filled adults by being with faith-filled adults. So we're going to spend some time today talking about that, why we believe the Bible teaches that, and why it's so important to us as a church that we say it's at the core of who we are. You see, God has given a joyful obligation to mothers in the raising of, of their children, but it's a responsibility. It's not unique to mothers. It's, uh, no one's going to argue that moms and dads are interchangeable, uh, that, uh, you know, like today's passage that's addressed to fathers, it's just a generic address to parents in general. It's not. Uh, but when we think about the goal of mothers in raising their children, particularly the goal of Christian mothers in raising their children, we're going to see that the goal of parenting uh, addressed to Christian fathers here is what it's what's what is what is spelled here is, is um, it's what is spelled out here in Ephesians six four clearly by God and that Christian fathers and mothers are to have the same goal for their children even if the roles are different and the responsibilities vary. Uh, in fact, this passage is talking about and describing what the Christian family, the Christian household, looks like, acts like, uh, and so if you're in a Christian household, these things should matter to you, right? That's that's why these are important. Um, before we get too far, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless his, his word. Heavenly Father, please uh, be with us today, uh, guiding us all to hear your word rightly, to be changed by it, to be formed by it, uh, through your spirit working in us. Uh, speak today to us, Lord, through that spirit, uh, causing us to see Jesus rightly, to value him above all other things, and to live as members of your household, Lord. Uh, Lord, we want to pursue all areas of life in the way you have called us to, uh, whether it's our jobs, our educations, our marriages, or our parenting, Lord. We need your help in this, and so we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, parenting has a goal, right? I think every parent here knows this, or really acts like it. Uh, where we get our idea of what that goal is, um, it can come from all sorts of places, Right, so maybe I, I look at my parents, and I see, look at the way they raised me, and their goals become my goals. Or, you know, if I don't, if I think they did a bad job, the opposite of what their goals are become my goals. Um, or maybe I look at my culture, my society, and absorb from that what my goal as a parent ought to be. Um, you know, it's possible to end up with all sorts of ideas of what the goal of being a parent is. Um, maybe I think the goal is to raise kids who have good careers and plenty of money when they're older. Or maybe the goal of parenting is to raise kids who uh, stay out of trouble. Don't do drugs, don't go to jail. Uh, or maybe, maybe I just leave the goal at something more generic, like my goal is to raise kids who are happy. Uh, whatever happiness means to them and, and however they choose to pursue it. So if I think one of those things is my goal, um, the thing I'm shooting for as I raise my kids, uh, how am I going to live 
Well, I'm going to live in a way that helps me fulfill that goal, right? If my goal is for them to have a good career and plenty of money, I'll make sure they do the things that get them, like a good education, uh, you know, uh, social skills, networking skills, working, uh, valuing working hard. If my goal is for them to stay out of trouble and be good moral people, I'll make sure they learn the consequences of bad behavior and they avoid it and value following uh, you know, good rules. Um, if my goal is maybe more vague, I just want them to be happy, maybe I'll pursue helping them be well-rounded human beings who know how to identify and then pursue what makes them happy. So there's varied goals. There's varied ways of reaching those goals. Some of them are good goals. Uh, some are good ways of reaching those goals. Um, but none of those get to the deepest concern for the Christian, which is, what does God say is the goal of my parenting? As Christians, when it comes to our parenting, that's the question that matters most, right? We don't take the answers that our society and culture offers us. We want to hear what God has to say about our goal in parenting. You see, for the Christian, we know that God made us. We know that we exist for his glory. We know we've been redeemed, made whole, made holy for his praise. And we know we've been called to reflect Christ's beauty in how we live. See, that means that our goal as parents can't exist separately from what God says the goal is. And, and I think Ephesians 6.4 is the, the passage that states that goal and how to achieve that goal most clearly of any place in the Bible. Um, in, in the original Greek, it's really a very short passage, just 16 words, um, but it's packed. It is just packed full of significance for what it means to be a Christian parent. And, and I'm going to jump ahead and give you a spoiler. Uh, the goal of, just like the goal of the Christian walk is to know God, to deepen our relationship with him, the goal of Christian parenting is to raise kids who know God. Uh, not just kids who know about God, but know him, are in a relationship with him. Uh, uh, this is what matters when it comes to our kids. And, and before any non-parents here today zone out, that doesn't apply to me, um, if, if you haven't already, <laughs> let me remind you that God placed you in a church and he also probably placed you in a life situation where even if you aren't actively parenting right now, um, this stuff does matter. You may be called to support just like we promised this morning, right? To walk with, counsel, and encourage friends who are parents, church family. You might have nieces or nephews uh, or younger or older siblings who need to know God. Uh, you may be a parent someday, or you, may have, uh, um, or you might be grandparents, and you have children who are doing this work right now, and they need your help, your encouragement. Or you may be a child of a parent who is seeking to do these things for you. Um, no one gets a pass to ignore the, this pass and say, that's talking to a different group of people. It's, it's um, whether you're a parent, no parent, have a parent, or you might someday be a parent, God's calling you to engage in the work of raising up the next generation to know him. And so the goal of Christian parenting is to raise children who know God, and that's the work of everyone in the church. So what is but what is, specifically does Ephesians 6, 4 have to say about that? Well, the first, first before we figure out what Ephesians 6, 4 has to say, we have to have a little context. Uh, so let's start with how Ephesians is organized. Uh, the Letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the mostly Gentile church at Ephesus. He spends the first three chapters describing what God has done for this group of Christians. 
It's a, it is just an incredibly rich three chapters. It's a tapestry describing the amazing work that God has done for his people through the work of Christ. Just listen to some of these, the ways Paul describes the way this, what this work is. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. Uh, right? He redeemed us and forgave us. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. We were dead, and he made us alive. Uh, we were in Satan's kingdom, his enemies, and he made us part of Jesus' kingdom. He raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. We were once far off, but he brought us near. We were not his people. He's made us his people. He reconciled us to himself and to each other, and is currently working to build us into a unified household where he lives with us himself. It's amazing stuff. It's, it's meant to cause us to open our eyes in amazement at this weight of glory uh, that is ours. It's, it's the beauty of being one of God's children, the majesty and splendor of who Jesus is, uh, what he's done for us, the way he took wicked rebels and he made them beloved members of God's family. Amen. And that, that raises something I need to say early here in the sermon, which is that this passage today is about parenting, but it only has real relevance to Christian parents, those who have trusted Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, who took the punishment they deserve for their sins and are currently trusting in Jesus to bring them safely to heaven someday, the ones for who chapters one through three are true. For the non-Christian today, today's text isn't, isn't going to help you by making you a better parent, or it's not going to help you raise better kids. Uh, when looking at a passage like this, you need to start at, by asking yourself, am I trusting Jesus? Am I saved by God so that I no longer love sin, love living life trying to be the ruler of my own life, uh, but instead I love God, I love that he's my king? And I love living as his faithful and obedient child. Uh, if not, you need to realize that you cannot live up to God's perfect standard in any part of your life, including your parenting. Your sins, like, just like mine, uh, and everyone else's here, deserve to be punished. And there's nothing we can do about that on our own because there's nothing we want to do about it on our own. Um, only God can change my heart and send his spirit to live inside me. And if you're not there... I encourage you to start there uh, with turning away from your sin, your desire to rule your own life, and turning towards Jesus. And that's, so that's the first half of Ephesians, chapters one through three, who we are as Christians. Um, and then chapters four through six, it's about what it means to this group of people. How then should they live? How do these things make a difference in their lives? What's the result in their day-to-day -day interactions, their relationships, the, you know, their behavior? Uh, because all these things are true in chapters one through three, there has to be something different about the way they live. Uh, now, they don't live the way chapters four through six describe to earn what's true in chapters four through six, or in chapters one through three, right? You know, chapter, doing chapter four through six doesn't earn you chapters one through three. Uh, that would be as silly as saying that one of my kids uh, becomes my kid by acting in a certain way, right? That's, 
doesn't make any sense. Um, That's nonsense. They're my kids apart from anything they do, but there is a way that they can live that shows they are members of my family, a way that shows that I'm their father, they're my children, a way that corresponds with the values that we care about as a family, Um, and even more so in Ephesians 4 through 6. And that's the second half. But there's also the particular section in Ephesians here, in parts, of, parts of chapters 5 and 6 resemble something that a Roman citizen living in the first century, which is what Ephesians were, uh, would be very familiar with, something known as a household code. Uh, there, this was like a, a code of conduct or a set of rules or sometimes even legal obligations governing how people lived in a household together, right, how they behaved. Uh, just like the codes that these Ephesians were used to seeing in their culture, Paul lays out a new household code here that flips the normal household code of the day completely on its head. Uh, but it would, have, would have been really familiar to the readers at the time what this was. And, and we're going to talk more about that because it has some pretty big significance for one of the coming up here. So that's the context of Ephesians, right? Uh, who you are, what you do. It's the amazing calling that God has powerfully and effectively called Christians into. There's a life that comes out of that and, that, and, that's, and there, that's appropriate to people for, such, for who such things are true as one through three. There's a household of God we live in, a family. And Ephesians 6, 4 is going to spell out what is the particular way of life that is appropriate to parents in that household uh, when it comes to raising their children. What does that way of life look like? What is the environment, the home, that, uh, that, that looks like the family of God and causes children to flourish in faith, to know God? Well, I believe that this passage is telling us, first, children flourish in faith when Christian fathers and mothers lead responsibly. That's the first point, responsibly. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm not saying that Christian parents never mess up. They're always on top of things. They never make mistakes uh, while raising their kids to know Jesus. But what it does mean, uh, so we get a question. What does it mean to be responsible? You know, dictionary definition, it means to have an obligation to do something or having control over or care for some, someone as part of one's job or role. See, that's definitely true of being a parent, right? But we make a mistake when we think our primary obligation spelled out in this passage is to our children. Think, think about the passage with me. What kind of passage is this? I hope you have it open in front of you right now. Is it a, a narrative, encouragement, report of Paul's activities? No, it's a command. Look at it. It says, do something. Well, you know, what it actually says is don't do something and do something, but right, you get the point. It's, it's a command to do something. Uh, Paul, speaking on God's behalf, using apostolic authority, tells Christian parents, especially dads, you need to be doing something. Uh, You see, we have to understand that we have a responsibility to raise children to know God. the, the, The fact that this passage is a command, it tells us he intends to use you to instruct your child. You will answer to him someday for how you've done. God's number one tool in the conversion and growth of your children is you. Now, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel overwhelmed, insufficient, guilty maybe? So regardless how it makes you or me feel, the passage is a command. 
And we need to deal with that reality. It's, it should, to some extent, rouse in us feelings of insufficiency because none of us can keep God's commands the way we're supposed to. There's only one person who was ever able to do that, and his name was Jesus. Uh, this passage, as well as every other command that God gives us to obey, should make us feel our own sufficiency because only with God's help, with God's power, supernatural power, am I going to be able to fulfill the command. Uh, we can't forget that, right? We can't forget that it's only through God's mercy and grace that we do these things, or else what ends up happening is, as, uh, as we, you know, when we feel like we're managing to obey, we become self-righteous and proud because, hey, I'm doing a good job. Um, or if we, f- we feel like we're failing to meet this command, we become full of despair and guilt because we're not doing it. And neither of those things is what this command is supposed to be driving us to. Um, we should, it, it should help us be humbled. I should realize my dependency on God and his mercy and on Christ and the way he perfectly fulfilled these commands. And then, realizing that God has told me to do this, I should step out in faith and try to live the way he has commanded. I, you know, I, out of love for him and thankfulness for my adoption into his heavenly family. And you know, I, I have a tendency, to, maybe others of you do as well, that you have to make the excuse, oh, it's impossible for me to fully obey this command the way that Jesus did. And so, right, I'm using that as an excuse for my own laziness and pride and sin. And we can't do that. We should plan our lives and the lives of our families in a way that we are making progress following the command to raise our children to know God. We need to ask ourselves the hard questions about and engage in introspection about how we're doing at this responsibility. And we should ask other Christians to help hold us accountable and to help us in doing this work that we're responsible to be doing. That's the first point. Children flourish in faith when Christian fathers and mothers lead responsibly. The second point is when Christian fathers and mothers lead tenderly. Do you you notice the word of contrast in the text? The but. What that is telling us is the stuff that comes before it is don't raise your kids that way, right? To provoke them to anger. Uh, That's that's something that we are not to be doing as Christian parents. Readers of Paul days absolutely would have recognized that, Christian, that a father you know, was responsible for his household, but here's where Paul flipped things on their head in the household code. You see, Roman law, based on what was called paterfamilias, uh, or head of family is the way that's translated, what that meant was that father is listened to. Paterfamilias meant dad can kill unruly or insubordinate members of his household. Paterfamilias meant Dad can dispose of his wife or his children or his slaves as he sees fit. Sell them, beat them, whatever. See, I, it was, um, I was reading about this Roman 12 tables, this, the, where these household codes came from, the foundation of Roman law. I found this. The fourth law of the 12 tables deals with the specific rights of patriarchs or families. One of the first proclamations of table four is that Dreadfully deformed children must be quickly euthanized. Babies with physical and mental diseases must be killed by the father himself. Also, if a husband no longer wants to be married to his wife, he can remove her from their household and order her to mind her own affairs. Women were considered to be under a form of guardianship similar to that of minors, and sections on ownership and possession give the impression that women were considered to be akin to a piece of real estate or property due to the use of terms such as ownership and possession. And finally, 
the Rome, original classical Roman definition of familia referred to a body of slaves and did not refer to wives and children. See, the article I was reading goes on to talk about how the original Roman legal doctrine had at its heart the idea of the familia as the patriarch and his slaves, those who serve him, those who meet his needs, order their lives around his happiness. It's an ultimately selfish system organized around the rights and the desires of the most powerful. And this should not surprise us. Uh, everybody seems to accept the statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as Christians, we know that's because of our fallen sin nature, right? Uh, our twisted and wicked desire not to rule over the parts of the world that God gives us as thankful stewards, given good gifts to take care of and, you know, for his sake, but instead to rule as tyrannical despots, squeezing every last bit of satisfaction for ourselves out of our possessions, our time, and our relationships, abusing any God-given authority until it's unrecognizable as God-given. That's our tendency, and God knows this. So he tells us, through Paul, to these Christians, instead of doing things for your own selfish gain, instead of ruling as a tyrant, instead of dictating to your kids, in that self-serving way that we all know we fall into, behaving in ways that create anger in my children. Instead, I am to bring them up. That's a, that's a Greek word that means uh, to feed and to nourish, right? To give the good things that cause something to grow. Um, it's the same idea expressed in Ephesians 5.29, which is probably on the same page of your Bible you're looking at right now. Where you can see it right there. It says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Christian parents are to nourish their children with the same kind of thoughtful attention that they give to nourishing their own bodies. And think about how you feed your body. Uh, think, are, are you aware when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're injured, when you need something? Uh, don't you supply that need when your body needs it? So notice the other thing about chapter 529. It's the same kind of nourishing that Jesus does with the church. And how does Jesus feed, nourish his church? How does Christ treat his people? Like the Roman 12 tables law, does he consign the people dreadfully deformed by sin to death? Does he look at those standing opposed to him, rebels and haters of God, and consign us to exile from his family? No. He treats us better than we deserve. He treats us with mercy. He treats us humbly. He suffered for us and because of us. He died for us. He willingly laid down all his own glory, and he laid down all his own rights to be treated well, and he did it all for the good of his people and his Father's glory. He, Jesus, is the embodiment of tenderness and love. See, much can be said about what it means for, for fathers or other household authorities, what it means for them to lead their families. 
But this passage inescapably says that one of the main things Christian parents, and especially fathers, the usual family leader, are supposed to be doing is laying down their lives for their families. They die to themselves so they can feed their families, nourishing them by feeding them the words and examples of Jesus. His life lived out in our lives. They take the lead in asking for forgiveness when they sin. They take the lead in showing what humbleness looks like. Uh, For husbands, uh, they show their children what they mean to serve their wives uh, and them. Pick up the washcloth, do the dishes, fold the laundry, get involved in their kids' schools, and know where each of your kids is developmentally. Uh, You don't consign your wife to raising the kids. You take joyful part in raising and caring for the kids yourself. A family leaders show their family that Christ-like leadership is humble service. The other thing that tenderness means is it means we express affection constantly for our children, regardless of how they are treating us. It means offering teaching and instruction with meekness and love. It means disciplining with sorrow and compassion instead of anger. It means acknowledging to them that daddy or mommy fails to love them as we ought, that I need their forgiveness, and often. It means recognizing that while I do have God-given authority as a father, or for others, God-given authority as a a mother, or God-given authority as an older sibling, or grandparent, or uncle uncle or aunt, what my oh-so-human tendency is going to be is to abuse that power for my own selfish ends. So I need to be humble, and cautious, and accountable. And I I ask my wife for help, knowing that my tendency is to fail, my personal tendency is to fail towards harsh authoritarianism when my rule is being thwarted. I'd like to challenge you today. When you go home or sometime this week, if you have a child or if you you, you have a child in your life, uh, you know, ask them, what do I do that makes you angry? Right? What do I do that makes you angry, that provokes you to anger? Maybe don't use provoke, because you're not going to know what that means, maybe. But, um, you know, sometimes your answer is going to be something childish, like, I don't like it when you tell me what to do. All right, you know, right? But I have had one child tell me, I get angry when you don't listen to me, when you don't hear what I'm saying, right? Let me tell you, that, that, uh, that stops me in my tracks, because they were right. I, I didn't have a clue in the moment. I, I had treated them unfairly, unkindly, and like a nuisance in my life. I provoked them to anger, exasperated them through my selfish behavior that sought to make them puppets in the dance of my happiness. So listen to what you do that makes your child angry. You might just open a window on the sin in your own life that you need to fight, the ways in which you are failing to be tender and the ways you can make progress in following following Paul's admonition to not provoke your children. See, tenderness is such a mark of Christian parenting because it's so necessarily Christ-like. Let us be tender with our little ones. So children flourish in faith when Christian fathers and mothers lead responsibly, tenderly, and third, firmly. Firmly. Whoa there, Paul, didn't you just say Christian parents are tender? What's this firm business about? Well, you've got to understand... We all got to understand that tenderness and firmness are just two sides of the same coin in Christian parenting. They must go together. They must both be present for our parenting to truly be.
be Christian, to reflect the current life of Christ in us. Uh, firmness without tenderness, right? We're going to talk about firmness, but start by saying firmness without tenderness, what we just talked about, that's abuse. I'll say that again. Firmness without tenderness is abuse. But if firmness without tenderness is abuse, then tenderness without firmness is selfish sentimentality. Um, if we thought that tenderness was all there was to raising children to know Jesus, we, we might make the mistake of becoming permissive, pushover, passive parents. Parents who never instruct with authority because our kids don't like it. Uh, parents who never discipline because we're afraid our kids won't like it. Uh, parents who allow any behavior because, hey man, judge not lest you be judged. You see, the, the reality is that that way of parenting is, is just as unloving as an authoritarian, dictatorial style of parenting that doesn't treat children tenderly. Paul instructs us, instructs us to discipline our children. And that has a very specific meaning. It doesn't mean beat your kid, right? It doesn't mean that. It means, discipline means to train towards a purpose. Um, Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 sums this up so perfectly, which is why why I wanted to read it today. Just listen to verse 10 again. Uh, For they, that is our human fathers, uh, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. God's perfect discipline trains us towards the end of being holy as he is holy in sharing in his holiness. Uh, It trains us to be like him to be with him, to reflect his character, to be like our father, right? Uh, we need to be, we, we really need to be careful because our goal for discipline, or at least mine, is it's way too often that my life is more comfortable or less noisy so that my kids make my life better, um, right? It can't be that. It needs to be aimed at their holiness. Uh, our, our, not our comfort and our happiness here on planet Earth. Uh, we, we do correct behavior because that's what we can see and that's what we can correct, but we always need to be aiming for our children's hearts. And the, the Hebrews passage talks about how that's done, right? The fact that it's not pleasant, the means is often painful, isn't it? Just think about a runner who disciplines themselves to run a race. It hurts. Uh, things must be sacrificed, like time and comfort. But none of it is pain just for the sake of pain. It's so that the goal can be reached. See, discipline is often painful in us as it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that can be really hard for some of us. We, We don't want our kids to be hurt. So we do everything we can to remove any sort of pain from their lives, including the discipline that trains them maybe. But, but what a terrible disservice to our children, right? Think about all the harm that can be done by never training your child to look both ways before crossing the street. You think about that harm? Then understand with me that the harm of being hit by a car, that pales in comparison to the harm that could train your kids to look both ways for cars, please. But also remember that the harm that can be done by never training your child to know God so much greater, eternal harm. 
So we discipline our kids in a way that leads them to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Children flourish in faith when Christian fathers and mothers lead responsibly, tenderly, firmly, and forth persuasively. Persuasively. I get persuasive from the part of the verse where it tells us to bring up our children in the instruction of the Lord. Uh, That word appears several other places in the New Testament that really help us understand what it means. Uh, It usually means an important teaching with a strong warning component. Uh, Like in Acts 20, 31, uh, when Paul's talking to the elders of the Ephesian church and he tells them to be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, right? He's teaching and admonishing them with tears. It's passive, I'm sorry, passionate, persuasive teaching that cares deeply about whether uh, the recipient listens to it. Um, Or think about 1 Corinthians 4.14 to the Corinthian church, which this is a church that's caused Paul so much pain throughout his ministry, right? What he says to them is he says, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He cares about them and he wants to persuade them of these things. So there's several things that we can learn about the persuasion we're supposed to be doing as Christian parents. It's persuasion motivated by compassion. God gave us a natural affection for our children, right? Um, And to this is added the tender hearts that loves people as Jesus loves them, not for what they can do for me, uh, but because they're immortal souls created in God's image for his glory and of immeasurable value. It's persuasion that's word-centered, right? The persuasion is word-centered, meaning God's word is what we are persuading with and about. It can be trusted. God's word made effective by God's spirit is what God has used to change hearts all down through history. We can trust that it will do that work in our children. And it's persuasion that's focused on their eternal well-being. It's not just persuading them to be good citizens, moral and obedient members of my household. Um, I, and I, I actually think that's, that's one of the greatest dangers that we need to, to uh, be careful of as, uh, you know, as a religious community, right? moral people, laws. We, right? we don't want to communicate to our children that our performance is what makes God like them. That because they don't watch certain movies and, or they don't wear certain clothes, uh, that God is pleased with them because of those things. Instead, our goal in persuasion needs to be to persuade them that they are sinful, just like we are sinful, and persuade them that the only hope for them, just as it is for their parents, isn't their behavior, but Jesus, his dying to make us his adopted children. Those gospel truths, our sinfulness, and our great hope in Jesus, those are the most important things that you can persuade your child about more important than persuading them that running into the street without looking is a bad idea. More important than persuading your child that a good education is a key to, the bright fu- to a bright future for them. A pleased Christian parent, be persuasive in how, when, how you try to convince your child that it is worth knowing Jesus. Uh, don't be apathetic about your God and Savior who plucked your soul from, cell, from hell and his promises to bring you to live with him someday in heaven. How can we be? 
Children flourish in faith when Christian fathers and mothers lead responsibly, tenderly, firmly, persuasively, and fifth and finally, spiritually. When Christian fathers and mothers lead spiritually. The final thing that characterizes Christian parenting in this passage is right at the end, it's that it's spiritual. Look with me at the last words of the passage. Do you see where it says, of the Lord, instruction of the Lord? In other words, uh, it's of the Lord, of Jesus. In other words, what does that mean, teaching of Jesus or instruction of Jesus? Well, it means two things. Uh, First, it means instruction and discipline that comes from Jesus. He's the one who gives us how to do it, why to do it. According to 1 Peter 1.3, the good Lord of our lives has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And in parentheses, you could put, and parenting. Uh, it's his, he gives it to us, and we give it to those in our lives, especially maybe, even primarily for some of us, to our children. Uh, second, discipline and instruction of the Lord means not just discipline and instruction that belongs to Jesus, but it's dist- instruction and discipline that is about Jesus. Uh, You see, it's instruction that comes from Jesus and it's about Jesus. It's the instruction that comes from God and helps us to know God better. Uh, It isn't primarily primarily geared towards a better, uh, more moral, more successful life here on planet Earth. Eternity is what's at stake. There's a psalm that says this better than I ever could. It's Psalm 73. It says, you know, David wrote this, but it's, the words of Christ. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, speaking to God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Knowing God, being with God, it's what we were made for and it's what our kids were made for. It's when we will truly be happy and fulfilled people and all earthly experience pales in comparison to what, uh, compared to what is to come for those who know God. See, ultimately, we can be as responsible, as tender, as firm, um, and as persuasive as humanly possible. Uh, But our children and their hearts are in God's hands. So we cry out to him in prayer, Lord, guide me with your counsel because I don't want my kids to be those who are far from you, those who you put an end to because they are unfaithful. Whatever happens with my kids, it is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, and I will tell my children of all your works. So I hope and I pray God sends his spirit to make my work that I do as a parent effective in their lives. Uh, But in the end, it depends not on human will or or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Isn't that good news, right? Right? With how often I fail at this job of parenting, of showing Christ to my kids, with how often my affection and desire for God is weak, it doesn't ultimately depend on me. And that's good news. Instead, 
It depends on a good and gracious God, one who has mercy. Amen, right? And there's so much reason for hope. Do you remember back at that first point when I talked about how this is a command, a command to be, that we're responsible to follow, how that should humble us and point us to our own insufficiency? See, by itself, that could be pretty heavy, pretty depressing, pile on the guilt, if that's all there was to it. If responsibility and burden and obligation was all there was. But because this is the instruction that belongs to Jesus, we know this is true of us as we engage in the work. This, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for this good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in it. Just earlier in Ephesians. Do you know what that means? That means that as we do this work, trusting in Christ to work through us, God will be pleased to do this good work. We aren't guaranteed certain results, but we know that God is working in us, that he saved us for this purpose, that this work pleases him and that the life of Jesus is evident in it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? Doesn't that fill you with hope and joy to do this work, knowing that Jesus Christ is in you, giving you his spirit to empower you and show his mighty power and grace to the children in your life? That gives me hope. So, I'd like to end with some questions for us to consider as we think about the things I've said. Um, and I'll, I'm gonna ask some, some questions, and I've asked myself these questions, and, and I need to regularly ask myself these things. So you, ask yourself, who makes sure your family is seeking God? How are you doing at being responsible for this? Is there a particular role that you personally are supposed to be taking in this seeking after God? As a father or a mother or a son or a daughter, a single person living at home or on your own, maybe as a child? Or if you're a grandparent, ask yourself, are you supporting your own grown children in doing this? What are you doing to help your grown kids raise their children to know Jesus? It's one I always have to ask myself, do you struggle more with sinful tendencies towards firmness or, towards in, or in your firmness or in your tenderness? Do you lean towards authoritarian dictator or permissive best buddy? And who can help hold you accountable to balance these in a healthy way? If you're a son or you're a daughter, a child here today, and you're, you're in your parents' home, are you paying attention to the work that your pa- parents are doing in raising you to know God? Are you paying close attention to what they tell you about these things? Are you seeking to imitate them as they imitate Christ? Are you making, are you making your faith in Jesus, uh, are you making a faith in Jesus your own faith or are you just on your parents' coattails? Do you have faith, or do you have faith in being a good kid, or do you have faith in Jesus? And, and something else I'd, you know, consider those questions. Those will help us all as we think about those things. But something else I'd like to encourage you to do, if you're a parent, go home and ask your kids this question. Really do this. Write this down if it helps you remember to do this. 
Uh, don't, it's not just the application part of the sermon. Do this. If you have kids in your life, ask them, what do I care, what do you think I care the most about? Right? What does daddy care the most about? And then prepare to potentially be convicted by their answer. Up to a certain age, kids are just going to tell you the truth of what they see, right? Uh, you know, I would love and I'd long for the encouragement that would come if the answer is, well, well daddy, you care most about Jesus. Um, but I know all too often the answer is you care about having time to yourself or you care about your hobby or you care about us doing what you say, Dad. Say, I hope you receive an encouraging answer because that can, that can be really awesome experience as a parent, right? Uh, but also be ready to be convicted and repent and renewed in the work of knowing Jesus better every day and for your kids to see that. So there's, there's other questions in the back of your outline. I encourage you to take time to discuss them either with your spouse or some other parents or your growth group in ways that help you think about how you can do this work of leading our children, in, um, causing our, or helping our children flourish in the faith when we lead in these five ways. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that you've given us not just as individual parents, Lord, but as, as a church and all the children that we have among us, Lord. This is a, we are richly blessed, Lord, and, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to be good stewards of the souls that you've placed into our care, these uh, sons and these daughters. Help us, Lord, to be good stewards, raising them to know you, to love you, and to trust you. Help us, help us, Lord, for their sake, uh, as our beloved children who we care about, but also, Lord, for your sake, as a witness to the fact that our lives and our children's lives are yours. Lord, we want to declare uh, with how we raise our kids that you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise. We want to declare to our children the worthiness of Christ. We want to die to ourselves and live to Christ in how we treat our kids, Lord. We need your help. We want to see each and every one of them grow to know you as their Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray for this. Amen.